So as we are going to, since you guys heard the Gospel of John, we welcome to the Gospel of John as you can. I thought I would do kind of this overview of John's Gospel, hitting on a major theme of John's Gospel. All four Gospels have a deeper theme woven into that. And if you we're kind of taught to, to read the Bible like up close, verse by verse, even memorize verses and things like that. We have this very up close view of the Bible. But what I'm going to do is back us off a little bit, get a bird's eye view of it, and see the whole thing uh, what it's presenting us. It's sort of like if you're looking at these stained glass windows, you can take any one of those tiles or frames and enjoy its beauty. But there's so much more to it if you put it all together and, and see it from afar. And that's what I'm going to do is kind of back up and get a picture of the whole mosaic of John's Gospel for you this morning that hopefully will serve you as you go through the Gospel of John throughout the weeks or throughout the years of John's Gospel events. Hopefully this will help plug some of that information in for you. So, John's Gospel seems to be hitting the major theme of Jesus being the new temple. That he is indeed the temple of God. He will say to the Pharisees, destroy this temple, and I will build it in three days. And then John gives you commentary on that and says he is speaking of the temple of his body. His body is in the temple. And I think John's gospel enlightens us to this in marvelous ways that you can't see if you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but you can see you back up and kind of absorb the whole thing at once. So as we talk about Jesus as a new temple, what was the Old Testament version, or I should say, what was the Exodus version of this temple? What was the original temple? What Moses and Israelites carried to the wilderness with them, the tabernacle, right? And Exodus chapter 25, God says to Moses, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width, and you shall make two cherubim of gold. A hammer to work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make a cherubim at the two ends of it, one piece with the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat is where the high priest, every Yom Kippur, every day of atonement, he would slaughter a lamb. He would dip a hyssop branch in the blood. He would, he would uh, then wash his hands and feet at a laver, which is big and broad above ground, well of water. He'd wash before he entered into the, the tabernacle. And the very first thing he would come across as he entered the tabernacle on his right was a table of showbread. To his left would be the lampstand. And then in the middle, right in front of the veil, would be the altar of incense. We're going to talk about all these today. Then there would be the veil, and on that veil, there's two cherubim sewn into that veil. There's two cherubim represented, the two cherubim from the Garden of Eden, that were stationed there to keep Adam and Eve out. One of the swords to keep them out of the garden. So those cherubim were sewn onto the veil to say, nobody can come through this veil. Why? Because on the other side of that veil is the Holy Holies. And the Holy Holies is this Ark of the Covenant. And on that Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. That was the gold lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. 
inside there, they got the Ten Commandments, Moses' rod, not Moses, Aaron's rod, that budded, and the Ten Commandments. That's it. Oh, the sample of the man was that. Now, on top of that lid of the mercy seat, as we just read, God said to make two cherubim. Those are the types of angels that were stationed at the garden. And he said to make these cherubim facing each other, with their wings extended towards each other, and the tips of their wings are touching each other. And it says their heads are being pointed downwards, looking at the mercy seat, looking at the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the Old Testament said every matter is established by two or more witnesses, right? So these cherubim are serving as witnesses to what's going to happen on that mercy seat. And what's going to happen on that mercy seat is the high priest who has the blood of the lamb on the edge of the hyssop branch is going to sprinkle that blood in between these two cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was to show that something died in the Israelites' place. There was a death that substituted for their death. Okay, so they could have their sins forgiven. Now, only the high priest could go behind that veil to where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he could only go once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. If it was any other person, on any other day, they would die back there because of the presence of the Lord. Because he's so holy. We, without atonement, cannot survive his presence. That's what we think have without Christ. So, the, the priest would literally, were, he had bells sewn onto the, the hem of his robe so that if those bells stopped ringing, they knew that wasn't the right guy or the right time or something. He died back there. And they would pull him out with a rope because you can't go back there again because you would die. That's how real and serious and heavy this was. So, what I want you to know is this. There's a lot of correspondence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a lot of times those correspondences are displayed through these pictures that we, we get. A lot of times they're word for word. So what I'd like you to take note of before I move to John's Gospel is the picture that was just painted. The picture that was just painted is of this mercy seat, two angels, one on one end, or the head, of, the head of the Ark of the Covenant, one of the feet of the Ark of the Covenant, looking at each other, looking at the lid, there are the two witnesses to witness that there was shed blood on behalf of the uh, Israelites. Their sins cannot be forgiven, forgiven. So with that, John is going to build upon that throughout his gospel. Now it's not just the mercy seat or the Holy of Holies or the Ark of the Covenant that John emphasizes. He's going to say that Jesus Christ fulfills every single part of that tabernacle picture. So to see that, what I want to do is I want to kind of place you guys, I want you to imagine that you're the high priest of Israel. We're in Old Testament days, you're the high priest in today, John before. So you've got to bring the sacrifice to the tabernacle. So the first thing that you're going to need as you approach this tabernacle is a lamb, correct? You need a lamb. Now, this is how John writes his gospel. He's going to, at the very beginning of his gospel, present you with a lamb. And then he's going to continue walking through the, the tabernacle. So, John chapter 1, verse 29, we read this. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming forward, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John had all sorts of Old Testament names that he could have used for God. He could have said, there's Jehovah 
He could use any number of numerous titles for Jesus. But he chose this one. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now why that title? Well, in John the Baptist's day, the Jews had an anticipation that went unmet. They were anticipating the arrival of the Lamb all the way back since Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, very familiar story to you. Let me remind you of it. In verse 1, it says, It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a, as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Then he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knows what's prescribed, and the prescription for the sacrifice is a lamb. He doesn't see one. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Then they came to the place which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound, his, uh, bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. That you have not loved your son, your only son, for me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, and the mouth of the Lord shall be provided. Now, Abraham gave a prophecy. He said, the Lord himself will provide the lamb. But what was caught in the thickets? A ram. A ram was caught in the thickets. And I would suggest to you that if a lamb was caught in the thickets there, then Abraham's prophecy would have been fulfilled, and there would have been no need to anticipate a future arrival of the lamb. They, would, they asked for centuries, where was the lamb for the sacrifice? Where was the lamb to replace Isaac? Why was it a ram? A ram is an adult male sheep. Okay. But instead of the adult male, they're expecting the son of that adult male sheep, the ram. They're expecting the son. So they were left in anticipation of a lamb instead of a ram. So John the Baptist is now letting them know, Behold, the lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. So we have our lamb for our sacrifice. So if we continue through the tabernacle, the next thing we're going to need is an altar to lift him up upon. 
This is in John chapter 3. We need an altar to lift the lamb upon us. In John chapter 3, as we go chronologically through this gospel, we see starting in verse 14, it says, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus here is saying, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, if you're not familiar, this is Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, and God sends serpents to, to bite them. And as being bit by these serpents, because of their disobedience, and they're laying, dying, Moses cries out to God. God tells Moses something that seems random, seems unusual, confusing, but God is already thinking of the Son Jesus Christ when he tells Moses, I want you to make a serpent made of bronze and put it up on a pole. And whosoever looks upon that serpent and believes he'll be healed will be healed. And so Moses made the serpent of bronze and lifted it up and they were looking upon it to heal their deadly disease. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would Jesus Christ compare himself to a serpent? Serpent is typically used as a figure of Satan. So why would Jesus now use this satanic serpentine figure to identify himself with? Well, I think the answer is that's the seriousness of sin, where he became sin on that cross. The Bible says he became sin. He didn't become a sinner. He became sin itself. He became very stench in his father's nostrils. And that's why he screams out on the cross of his abandonment from the Father. So how serious is our sin? How serious are the lies that we tell, or the cheating that we do, or the, the lust that we have in our hearts, and things like that? It made the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ Himself, become the servant figure of Scripture. So it goes up on that cross for us. So, so in John 3, we have our altar to bring it up upon. It's the cross. The next thing we come across when we're going through the tabernacle, before we even enter into the tabernacle, you would have that altar, and now you would have the labor. The labor, as I said earlier, was this above ground well of water for the priest to wash their hands and feet in. So for Jesus to fulfill this tabernacle, we need a labor now. And this is John chapter 4 and 5, which we continue chronologically through John's gospel. In John chapter 4, it's probably one of my very favorite chapters of all scripture. It's the tale of the Samaritan woman. And Jesus sits down at a well where if you are a first century Jewish person living in Israel, and you were reading that Jesus sat down by a well, you would have anticipated something marvelous happening. Because whether it was Moses, Isaac, Jacob, the heroes of the Old Testament oftentimes found their brides at wells. They would sit down at a well with a woman that would come, one of them would become the wife of the hero of the story. The Old Testament well was a little happy hour rock spot in the Old Testament. So, um, and every time these brides are described to us, they're described praising their beauty and their integrity. So these great men of the Old Testament marry these great women of the Old Testament when they meet at 
well. So when it says in John 4, Jesus sat thus by a well, if you were a first century Jew, you would have thought immediately, is Jesus going to actually come to bride here? And if he is, what type of woman must she be? If, if, if Isaac's equal Yoki was Rebecca, and Jacob's equal Yoki was Rachel, and uh, Moses' equal Yoki was Zephora, there's this equal Yoki of these great men or these great women, who could possibly be equally yoked to Jesus Christ? And who comes but a Samaritan woman, married and divorced five times, currently living out of wedlock with a sixth man, the most unlovely woman of the entire New Testament is who shows up. And this is a whole sermon in itself, but I'll just tell you really quickly. It's because where Solomon in the book of Proverbs says, when you come across the adulterous woman, you are to flee her. You're to run. That's the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus says, one greater than Solomon is amongst you. He doesn't run from these women. He doesn't run from the adulterous woman that we find early in Proverbs. And later in Proverbs chapter 31, we find the virtuous woman that was supposed to marry. He doesn't run from the adulterous and look for the virtuous. He transforms the adulterous into the virtuous. And that's what we see in John chapter 4. That's what we see in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. He becomes a woman who goes and sins no more. So the greater wisdom of Jesus Christ over Solomon is the ability to transform. You as a Christian with the Spirit of Christ living in you, your Christianity is all about transformation. You who once walked in darkness, now you walk in light. You who were once dead in your trespasses and your sins are now alive in the light of the Lord. It's total and complete transformation. Now, that this well of water in the Old Testament, this labor, the priest went from having blood on his hands from the sacrifice to becoming clean. So they could enter into the tabernacle. Jesus at this well of water transforms a woman who could not be in the presence of God because of her sin to somebody who becomes the bride of Christ, saying that you became the bride of Christ upon your salvation. So, if you remember this chapter, this woman will ask Jesus a very interesting question that he seems to not answer. She'll say, Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you familiar with that verse? John 4. So look at Jesus say, greater than our father Jacob. Jacob's legacy is built upon the fact that he could never love Leah, his other wife, because she was unlovely. The Bible says she remained unloved by Jacob because she was unlovely. So the cry of this woman's heart is, can you love the unlovely? Are you greater than Jacob? And little does she know that that chapter she becomes a bride. It's a marvelous, marvelous chapter as you can see. But all I want to tell you is there's a whole lot of there's a labor, and it's, it's fulfilling the tabernacle for us. Chapter 5 also is a water theme as a man who was crippled for, for some 38 years gets healed at the pool of Bethesda. Right? So again, we have water teaching of transformation and healing. That's the idea of the labor as we continue through John's gospel here. So now as we have our lamb, we have our altar, we wash in our labor, now we can enter into the tabernacle. None of that, that stuff has been just outside the tabernacle. Now we enter into the tabernacle immediately, immediately on the right. Can you remember what I said would be there? Excellent. It's the uh, table of showbread. 
table showbread would be right there on your right. Now the table showbread, God said to have the table showbread have 12 loaves of bread on it always. One representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, 12 loaves representing 12 tribes. And the basic idea of that was that God provided manna miraculously every day in the wilderness and you won't have to touch this bread. That's why it's called showbread. It's there to visually remind you that God will provide for you and as this bread goes uneaten, you'll know that God is providing manna for you in the wilderness. So the showbread, 12 loaves, one for each of the 12 tribes. Now how does that fulfill? Well, it's John chapter 6. And we keep walking through the tabernacle. See how John's kind of walking you right through? I know I ever. And what's fascinating about John 6 is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But the feeding of the 5,000 miraculously with bread is not the fulfillment of the showbread. The fulfillment of the showbread comes in a detail. And you'd be amazed at how much information God gives us through details that we think are just details. They're just unnecessary. But I'm going to give you a fancy term called logographic necessity. Logographic necessity simply exists. Every word of the Bible is necessary. There is no fluff. There's no extraneous detail. Everything in there is meant to instruct you and inform you. It's inspired by God. And we like to say in theological circles, the verbal, plenary, uh, infallible, inerrant word of God. And all that's to say is, in every word of it is inspired by God and it's true and cannot be wrong. But Jesus said that bar is too low. Jesus said, there's not one jot or tittle of the word that will be fulfilled until all of it's fulfilled. A jot and tittle, a jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew uh, alphabet. It's uh, half the size of any other letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And a till was the very smallest stroke of the pen when you wrote out the, al the alphabet. It was like dotting an I across a T. It was the tiniest mark that you would make with writing out the Hebrew alphabet. So he said not one stroke of the pen that formed a single letter of the scriptures will be left unfulfilled. All of it will be fulfilled. So he had an even higher bar than we, are, we do for reliability of the scriptures. So with that, the detail in the feeding of the 5,000 that shows the fulfillment of the showbread is when Jesus feeds the 5,000 he says to his disciples, don't gather the leftovers. It says when they gather the leftovers, there's no fish left over, but there was bread. And how much bread was left over? Twelve baskets. So now they have the twelve loaves. Now it's for representing the apostles it's now the new covenant era rather than representing the 12 tribes which is the old covenant era so Jesus is ushering in the new covenant era which he will say it's new wine but you can't put an old wine stands all over so you gotta have new wine stands for your new wine this is the new wine that we're talking about he's ushering in the new covenant in his blood the symbol of that uh, is this tabernacle and now we have our 12 loaves as we continue through our walk through the tabernacle, we go to John chapter 17. The next thing we will come across, I'm sorry, let's get the lamps. Let's go to John chapter 8. The next thing we come across is the lampstand. And here's what God told Moses about this lampstand. He said, when evening comes and the sun's going down, you light the lampstand because there's no darkness in the presence of God. 
So you always got to make sure the sun goes down, you let the lamp stand to burn all night long until the sun comes up because there's no darkness in God's presence. That's what Revelation tells us. That heaven is constant light. There is no darkness. Even though there's no sun or moon or stars, God is its light. The land is its light. So, to represent that reality, they had to light the lampstand every single night and there's no darkness in God's presence. So in John chapter 8, we see Jesus make this marvelous statement. Because Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So Jesus' claim is to be this everlasting light. Now, if there's no darkness in the presence of God, besides, generally speaking, sinners and Pharisees and folks like that walking in darkness, who is the most significant sign of somebody walking in darkness back then? The blind. The blind were always walking in darkness, weren't they? So what happens every time Jesus comes across the blind person? He heals them. Why? There's no darkness in the presence of God. If you're going to be in Jesus' presence, you have to receive light. The light in your eyes. And, and that shows you that Jesus is who? God. It must be God who doesn't allow that darkness in his presence. So it was always, always heal the blind. So in John chapter 9, John chapter 9, the first seven verses, we read this. I love this. Now, Jesus passed by, and he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me all this day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And he, when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and they clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said he would go wash in the pools of Siloam, which is translated sin. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, this is probably just a sin in my heart, but if I were this guy and I felt Jesus' saliva being rubbed in my eyes, I think I would have said, Jesus, I heard rumors of you healing the blind and you didn't spit on them. You did it other ways. Why couldn't I get one of the other ways? You didn't yell, right? But why? Well, this is a whole other sermon that I don't think we should do. But let me just say this. Because the Bible is so beautiful. I just want to bring up these points of view when I can. And this is something I'm speculating on. So I'm only proving you wrong. You guys never let me back and all that stuff. That's what it is. But, but I, I hear Jesus. The book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, correct? There's some joy set before Jesus that allows him to endure the suffering of the cross. And yes, I think the most common answer is right, which is you and I are that joy that was set before him. But he does heal in some weird ways that I see come up at the cross. The only one I'll bring up right now is this blind man getting slide on him. I find it remarkable that Jesus will be blinded by the Roman soldiers. They will throw a towel over his face and blind him. And while blinded, they spit on him. So is it at all possible that Jesus knows he'll be blinded and spat upon, that he heals this blind man with saliva, so that as he receives the suffering that he's going to receive, he can remember the joy of that blind man receiving the suffering.
deciding that he became the joy set before Jesus and helped him to endure that part of the cross. So, again, I say I don't know, but it's kind of cool to think about. And you can do that with, with uh, Jesus stretching out his hands, you can do that with the issue of blood that he flows, there's people that get healed of that stuff in the New Testament, which I think might be the joy set before as well. Uh, so the lampstand is the darkness in its presence. The blind receive sight, so they go from darkness to light, representing the lampstand. The next thing we come across right before we get to the veil is the altar of incense. Now the altar of incense, they were told by God that to always be burning incense from this altar, 24-7, every time the tabernacle was set up, you burn incense. There's a smoke that would rise from that incense represented the prayers of the people. So as Paul says, pray continuously, right? The sign of that is the smoke constantly going up to the altar represented the prayers of the people. Now I think John 17 fulfills that because I think that's the Lord's Prayer. Now some of you will say, no, Matthew 6 is the Lord's Prayer. I don't think that's the Lord's Prayer. Even though your Bible is leading the title of the Lord's Prayer there, that's our prayer. He taught us to pray. That prayer. So that's the that's the disciples' prayer. That's the followers' prayer. But the Lord's prayer, John 17, which we sometimes call the High Priestly Prayer, where Jesus, the entire chapter of chapter 17, if you have a red letter Bible, that entire chapter is in red, except for the first verse that says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, and then the whole thing goes red, and it's his High Priestly Prayer. And in that prayer, just like the altar of incense, we have the smoke of continuous prayer. Jesus gives a prayer in three sections. And those three sections count for all people always. And to me, it's that inclusive uh, prayer of the altar of incense. He starts by praying for himself. He prays for himself in the first five verses. Then he prays for his disciples for the next 15 or so verses. And then he finishes in a wonderful way where he, he prays this. I not only pray for my disciples, but I pray for all who will believe based on their testimony. Who's that? You and me. Pray for us in John 17. All who will believe based on their testimony. And you know what I love about that? In John 17, they didn't even have a testimony yet. He hasn't died, he hasn't risen again. The whole purpose of this coming hasn't even happened yet. But not only does he know it's going to happen, not only does he know his disciples will believe when they see it, but the gospel for you know, so they're going to go across the world and spread the world, spread the news to the world. And so Jesus prays for those who believe based on the testimony. Okay? No other religion can offer you a founder that knows the future like this. Okay, it's one of the great apologetics for our faith. Now, the John 17 fulfills the altar of incense. That brings us to the veil. Now the veil is the only time we leave the gospel of John to the book of Hebrews. But the first several years that I taught this, I just skipped the veil. I didn't think there was any fulfillment of the veil at all, and I don't see the fulfillment of the veil in John's Gospel. But teaching you the book of Hebrews a couple years ago, I saw this verse, and I literally got chills on my arms when I saw this, because it couldn't be clearer what the fulfillment of that veil was. Now, what was sung onto that veil? Jeremy from the Garden of Eden, right? Make sure nobody goes past the veil, because that's where God is dwelling in the ark of the covenant, correct? Well, in Hebrews chapter 
The author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, the holiest being the holy of holies, being the place nobody can enter but the high priest once a year, and say, now you have boldness to enter any time you want. This is why we don't believe you have to go to a priest and pray. You have the, you have the boldness to sit here now and pray right into the holy of holies yourself as a believer in Christ. Why? Because you have the blood of the Lamb on his side. The blood of the Lamb is on your heart. It's you. You carry the blood of the Lamb everywhere you go. That frees you to enter into the Holy of Holies. Isn't that amazing? So, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, ready for this? Through the veil, which is his flesh. Could be any clearer that the, the veil, God made that veil to represent the flesh of his son. So when Jesus' body gets broken, what happens to that veil? Torn in two from top to bottom. It's not a random act I was doing, it's representing he broke the body of my son, the veil represents his broken flesh being torn in two, and now since his birth, because of his death, we can now enter into the presence of God through that death. This is why Jesus can say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and don't be to the Father except through me. How is there any other way? There's no other way. People say that's very exclusive. But it could be more inclusive when Jesus says, whosoever believes is invited in. The posture of him on the cross is the most welcoming posture we can have. Arms stretched as wide as they can be. It's exclusive to the way you get there, but it's inclusive in who can take that way, correct? The veil. That leads us now, ladies and gentlemen, with the one last thing to view, the Ark of the Covenant. And if you remember, I talked about the mercy seat, correct? And the two cherubim, one at the head and one at the feet of the Ark of the Covenant, they're looking down at the lid, and the two witnesses to say the land of blood that shed between these two cherubim, and that shows you can forget And because it had to be the it had to be the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur. It had to be the high priest and the high priest only, and all of that. The way they knew God accepted their sacrifice every year on Yom Kippur, the sign that the sacrifice was accepted by God was as simple as this. The priest walked out alive. He accepted it. He died back there, something wrong. Okay? So if you walked out alive, you're in good shape. <laughs> all right. Now, let's see the fulfillment of that picture in John 20. This is the uh, Sunday morning of the first Easter. This is the resurrection Sunday morning. John 20, verse 1 says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that a stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran to meet the sign of Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, the author of this gospel. And she said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, but we don't know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, and I want you to take careful note of what they see. The Bible's going to give you details now. We talked about the importance of details, correct? Right? Pay attention to the details of what they see, what the Bible is telling you what they see. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, 
yet he didn't go in. These are the thoughts of Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea would wrap his body in. Okay? So Joseph Arimathea asked Pilate for Jesus' body off the cross. And Jesus' body was so brutalized that Isaiah prophesied that nobody could be through worse from head to toe. Says his appearance and form were marvelous than any man. Thirty-nine lashes, guards punching him in the face, beard hair pulled out of his face, uh, all of that. He would have been profusely bleeding, spear in his side, puncturing his heart. He would have been profusely bleeding. So they wrap up these cloths. They would have been blood-soaked cloths. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. You know, a lot of people think we have that base cloth now. You know that? The shroud of Quran. Okay, DNA evidence puts it right to the time of Christ. It's got, it's got a figure of his face with a crown of thorns moved across the forehead. Going on. It's possible we actually have this, this face cloth. Folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. So something about this dirty laundry causes faith in it. He sees the lip cloth lying there, he sees the face cloth in a place by itself. Now, it says, For as yet they didn't know the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own homes. So in other words, the men are gone. The only one standing there still is whom? Mary. And I love that it's Mary that's standing there when the other guys leave because Jesus taught us something that he who's been forgiven much loves much, right? And I don't know anybody who's forgiven more than Mary. Who was Mary when Jesus found She was satanic. She was possessed by seven demons. Seven being the number of totality. She was completely possessed by Satan. History kind of puts her there as a harlot or adulteress, that's being very kind. The Bible says worse. She was entirely demonic and satanic until she met Jesus. And she became totally new. And now she's the one because of her forgiveness. She has this great love for Jesus that she can't bring herself to leave the tomb when the other guys leave. So verse 11 tells us, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, with the body of Jesus as a mind. What is she looking at? She's looking at the Ark of the Covenant. She's looking at the mercy seat. Two angels, one at the head and one at the feet. What's in between the two angels? The blood of the Lamb on the cross. Okay, in between the two angels. She is looking into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the very mercy seat of the Old Testament. And here's what's absolutely astounding. The only person that has ever seen that scene in history, in Jewish history, is a high priest. And now it's a former demoniac looking at the fulfillment of that scene. And it's a woman.
me the most significant is that these angels did not reveal themselves to Peter or John to the very closest friends of Jesus. They waited for them to leave. And it was Mary all by herself they appeared. And she gets to see what only the high priest has ever seen. And, <clears throat> and how do we know that that sacrifice of Jesus Christ is acceptable to the Father? Because Jesus walks out alive. Mary walks out alive. <clears throat> The Old Testament said that the most defiled place in all of Israel was a tomb. It's filled with dead men's bones. So if the, the tomb is the most defiled place, how would Jesus Christ rise from that tomb and literally becomes the most holy place, the holy of holies? You see the transformation we're talking about? The most defiled woman in the entire New Testament becomes a high priest. She's seen what only the high priest saw. This is by Peter. When he writes first Peter, he'll say this. But said, we have all become a royal priesthood. Because he understands what happened at that tomb. You and I have become part of the royal priesthood. Through faith in Christ. That's why we can enter into the Holy Holies of Holiness now. And God used Mary for that. It's wonderful. So the most defiled place has become the most holy. The most defiled woman has become the high priest. Introducing this new wine. That we've got to have new wine since the day before. So what are the new wine skins? If you're getting ready for it, you're to understand that the Spirit of Jesus lives in the end. There is not a person on this planet that you can say is without hope. You bring hope to every human being on the planet. For who you have living in you is the power that Jesus said you will receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power. And I think a lot of our country is walking around unconverted because a lot of people in the churches this morning don't understand the power that they have. The lives that are called to, the holiness that are called to is will convert the unbeliever. You are the light of the world. The light defeats darkness every time. The nature of the light switches on here, they have hope and pray right the time. But we need the darkness, they know for a fact that the light always conquers darkness, and that light is you and me. Amen. <laughs> Father Jesus, name, thank you uh, for your word. Lord, as we come to the deep dive today, we thank you that just this fisherman named John wrote this is amazing, Lord. And we know not many fishermen that write something like this, and we know, Lord, that he's inspired. Lord, you inspired him, you also inspire us to live for you. Even if we want to pick up our own cross every day and follow you. So Lord, we pray through the blood of your son Jesus Christ that you forgive our sins. You make us holy, Lord, where we can. So that one day we will be face to face with you in all glory. So Lord, we pray.